Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are bigger than anything in this world. Lord, we thank you that you're bigger than the problems in our lives. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you're bigger than the things that compete for our attention. And we thank you, God, that you are greater than sin. And by Jesus Christ, by his life, by his perfect life, by his death on the cross, on our behalf, by him being raised from the dead after the third day, that sin has been overcome. So we thank you for that victory. And we thank you that because of that, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. Our passage comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. If, if you brought a Bible with you today, I encourage you to follow along. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. It'll also be on the various monitors throughout the room and on this screen behind me. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's true, I love college football more than, than pro. I did enjoy the, the Super Bowl last week. It was good. I love football, I think, more than the other sports because I played football in high school. My junior year, Sweetwater High School Bulldogs made it to the playoffs, state, in their division. After winning ten games without losing, all that hard, long, grueling, hot practices in Alabama paid off. We made it there. We made it. In order to get there, we had to start much earlier. I remember, even though it's been a few years, we started the first couple of weeks in August with twice-a-day practices. I had to get up at 5 to be at practice at 6 for two hours. 
After practice, I would leave and go haul hay. And back then, I think the hay, I'm probably 75 pounds at least, you pick them up as the bailer goes by and you throw them up. But I did that and then I would rush home, get a shower, and then go back to two more hours of football practice. It sometimes would be 95 to 100 degrees raw temperature. And remember when school started, there were days it was kind of cold, not compared to here, but it was cold. I didn't put on those sweaty uniforms. I didn't want to go to practice. Sometimes it was raining. I'd much rather gone home. I didn't dare miss practice because if you miss practice, Coach Atkins has something extra for you. Extra laps around the field, extra sprints, he made sure that we didn't miss. I remember dreading being a dummy. Probably 15, 16 years old. I must have weighed 150 pounds soaking wet. I didn't enjoy going out and serving as a dummy for the scrimmage against the starting team. Those guards and tackles weighed 250, 275. There are times after getting hit, I wanted to quit. I wanted to quit. Those drills combined with scrimmage were purposeful. Coach Atkins knew what he was doing. He wanted us in shape. He wanted us to know our responsibilities for each play that we ran. He wanted to build strength, perseverance as a team. He wanted to make sure we had our timing down so we wouldn't be offside. He wants us to work together like a machine, he would say. Those sprints, sometimes it would come at the end of two hours of practice, took everything out of me. And I would think, maybe I should just quit. Maybe I'll quit. It was year-round practice, it seemed like. But I couldn't quit. Especially my junior year when we were winning football games. That was the goal. That's why I went through all that. To win. I remember part of our practice also was viewing films of the opposing team. We looked at what they had done. We watched them for plays that they might play that we didn't know. We discussed how we would defend against or how we would go on offense. That history of the other teams enabled us to know who they were and how to play against them. All that hard work, the long, difficult, hot practices paid off, and we made it through the first ten season games and then through the playoffs, and then we lost at the end. We lost the championship. I think about the next year, we lost a lot of seniors. We had several transfer and I think the next year we won maybe 50% of our games all that glory of winning all that excitement about going to the state that died that discipline that self-control or that prize that we go for in football or other things in life is so temporary it's so short-lived Last week, 
Pastor Kerry made reference to winners of races receiving a crown of celery. And I read about them how sometimes that crown was wilted already. Well, Paul reminds the Corinthians that athletes run that race for the prize, a crown that will not last, but that we, as believers, run the race for a crown for reward that is for eternity. Paul says, I, I, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. He said, I discipline myself, my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul knew that Christian life wasn't a uh, 100-yard dash. He knew it was a marathon. It required endurance and commitment lifelong. Paul uses a, a kind of a technical term in, in athletics when he says disqualified. It's when one fails the test or it's when one is thrown out of the contest. It's not referring to one's salvation. It's a reference to believers standing before God on Judgment Day. And I'm sure that most of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul writes about our rewards. And he says, the fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done, whether it's gold or silver, or wood or hay or straw. And of course, if it's based on Christ, the builder will receive an award, a reward. If it's burned up, Paul says that he will suffer the loss, but will still yet be saved. In our passage today, you'll turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. And Paul warns the Corinthians, gives them two dangers. First, the presuming on God's goodness, and secondly, compromising. He addresses a group, if you remember, a group that were quite arrogant, who assumed that they were wiser than all the others, and that they're more spiritual than their weaker brothers. In our text today, Paul draws together all the previous admonitions, all those rebukes concerning the conduct and the character of the Corinthians. If you remember, there was strife, there was division, and they looked down on Paul, he and his simplistic gospel of Christ crucified. Immorality ran rampant. If you remember, there was this one individual who was having sex with his stepmother. Even the pagans were shocked. Some were going to secular court against others, and others were going to temple prostitutes. In all this, Paul confronts. And many of them were defensive about their rights, their rights, um, their liberties. Um, and Paul began to deal with the issues of meat offered to idols back in chapter 8. And if you remember, he, he kind of left their challenge 
um, uh, their premises um, to stand unchallenged. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't at that point question. He says that you had a right to eat meat offered to idols. It's, there is only one God, and that the strong are to set aside their right for the weaker brother. In chapter nine, the last two weeks, we've seen that Paul built his case that even though he could do all these things or deserved all these things, that he set aside his rights for the gospel. Today in our text, Paul begins to approach the subject of eating meats offered to idols in a very different way. And it's powerful. Uh, he goes beyond the issues of eating the meats. His words apply to every sin, every problem, every issue that the Corinthian church was struggling with. Going back to chapter 1, that's quite a few. He'll show that the Corinthian problems are not new, but a repetition of problems faced by ancient Israel as they left Egypt, headed to the Promised Land. He'll sum up all these issues and show that they have one common denominator, self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. Paul disciplined himself so that he would not be disqualified. He warns them of presuming on God's goodness. They thought that they were mature. They thought that they were spiritual. They thought that this combination of their experiences and the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, uh, were sufficient to keep them from falling away. Paul warns them about their overconfidence and how it might lead to their downfall. We see first the danger of presumption in the first 13 chapters, the first 13 verses. And we read the first five verses, we see that five times that all is mentioned. Five times. He describes their blessing, saying, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul is saying here, every one of the Israelites received all the blessings that the others had. But in reality, only two went into the promised land. Only two. We see here the histories of two different nations in play. Israelites, the Corinthians. Both histories are examples of a common human experience, idolatry. Both were delivered by God. Israel from Egypt. The Corinthians from sin and death. Both histories communicate that God has sustained them. God had provided with Israel with manna from heaven to eat and water from rocks at times. Of course, the Corinthians were sustained spiritually through the spiritual food and drink 
the Lord's Supper. Both histories speak of a people who, despite having God's deliverance, His presence, His provision, they were drawn to other gods. Despite all these things, Israel was drawn to other gods. While all who left Egypt experienced God's provision, only those two was God pleased with. Physical death sometimes can be a temporal divine judgment suffered by disobedient believers. Well, like Israel in the Old Testament, we too have received spiritual blessings, spiritual privileges. And just as Israel was under the cloud, we experienced God's protection and His guidance. In the same way that Israel was baptized into Moses, we've been baptized into Christ. And just as Israel had manna and water, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But God's blessings and privileges do not guarantee that one will win the race or finish well. Those who fail to enter into the promised land are those who fail to trust God. They lack the self-discipline fell due to their self-indulgence. In verses 6 through 10, Paul identifies specific sins. I'm sure this is not all of them, but these are some of the sins that we see ancient Israel um, committed. In spite of these blessings, Paul says first, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown. Again, Paul is being generous with those. We know that two out of about two million never entered into the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb. We see in this passage God's judgment and his discipline in the lives of his people. Paul warns the Corinthians, he warns us too, of the severe consequences of idolatry. He reminds the Corinthians of Israel's failures as he summarizes the stories from 40 years of walking, living in the wilderness. Through it all, we see disqualification. In reality, Paul is saying to us to pay attention to these Old Testament stories because we too stand accountable, just as Israel did. These are lessons that we desperately need as we look back in history, look at the first statement in verse 6. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And it gives a listing of the sins in verse 11, kind of brackets it off and says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So God wants us to pay attention to these stories in the Old Testament. He wants us to learn because they were recorded for our benefit. Paul wants us to see ourselves in the context here. He wants us to see ourselves here because we too, we too might fall into sin like Israel and be disqualified. Again, I'm not talking about losing salvation. Before we look at the sins committed by Israel, take note of the source 
of these four sins that are listed is craving evil things. Verse 6 says these things took place, these examples, that we might not desire evil as they did. The New Living Translation says we might not crave, crave evil things. It refers to a, a very strong feeling or emotion uh, that kind of begins to control our mind and the heart and begins, it, 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 our desire just kind of become fixed on it. This greed, this insatiable, unquenchable um, thing that leads to a loss of control. When we lust for things, we, in essence, are worshiping and seeking our happiness, our security, our meaning in those things rather than God, whether it's power or prestige or possessions or pleasure. We see our first, first sin in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. First sin was idolatry. This reference here goes back to when God gave, was given, uh, God gave the, the law to Moses and he went off for 40 days. If you remember, Israel got uh, scared. They began to, to, um, to act up and put pressure on Aaron and Aaron created the golden calf. In a similar way, the Corinthians were guilty of idolatry through their temple visits. We see the second sin listed in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 died in a single day. 23,000. We see in verse 8, immorality there. The sexual morality of the Israelites continued through their wandering. They practiced sexual immorality um, with the Moabites, if you remember. If you remember the women, the Moabite women kind of drew the men to them, and they got involved with the feast and got involved then in sexual immorality. Like Israel, again, the Corinthians were guilty of sexual immorality. We've already gone through a listing of all these various things. Idolatry, immorality. And the third sin is testing God. And verse 9 says, we must not put God to the test. If some did, and were destroyed by serpents. This is a reference here to Numbers 21. If you remember, God had provided manna for the Israelites to eat and water to drink. But they didn't like it. As a matter of fact, they despised the manna. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, and many died. There's a warning for the Corinthians to not presume on God's goodness and for us to. Well, idolatry, immorality, 
testing God's patience. Now in verse 10, we see the fourth sin. It says, Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Tragically, it seems, if you read the stories of Israel, this grumbling continued on and on. It started about a month after they left Egypt. They grumbled at least for two years. And finally, God decreed that anyone 20 years or older would never enter into the promised land. They wandered for 40 years until the last rebel died. The Israelites wanted more. They had his presence. They had his provision. They had his protection. Yet that wasn't enough. Sometimes that's us. We have his presence. We have his provision. We have his protection. We look elsewhere. All these sins, idolatry, immorality, testing Christ, grumbling. Paul has now brought the issue out. It, It is no longer what the Corinthians thought it was. It's not about what who was right. It's not about one's rights. The issue is sexual indulgence, or rather, self-indulgence. And all the issues that exposed um, with the Corinthians were really a matters of self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. The cliques there in the Corinthian church were based on self-indulgence. If you remember, when we first started this study, people attached themselves to different leaders People attached themselves to these real glitzy people who were popular. And so it gave them status. Of course, those involved in sexual sins, that was very much self-indulgence. Going to court against your brother or sister in Christ, that's indulgence. It was all about me. It's all about me. The sins of God, or rather, the sins of people, rather, um, that uh, belong to God, were very similar to each other. Israel, the Corinthians, in reality, if we're not careful, us. And Paul warns us to not boast about our spiritual condition. We're all in a dangerous position if we think. That sin doesn't matter in our lives. A dangerous position. Well, after reminding the Corinthians of Israel's sins and God's severe punishment, discipline, Paul then then gives the Corinthians one more warning before he gives a, a word of encouragement. We see in verse twelve, it says, "Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall." And the warning is. Those who have sometimes great beginnings, we can begin, we can do well, we can be consistent. We can fall and be disqualified. Satan deceives us, doesn't he? He makes us think we've arrived. And those who are on the spiritual mountaintop are the most vulnerable. But no matter what, we must pursue that prize of the race. Diligence 
Think about it. Moses led the two million or so Israelites out. And yet he was not allowed in because of unbelief. Well, think of Lot. He was selfish and greedy, right? He didn't respect his uncle. He craved for the things of the world, which led eventually to drunkenness and to incest. Or take Samson, for instance. He married a pagan, committed sexual immorality with a prostitute, and eventually his life was taken. Well, after the warning, Paul gives encouragement. He says, God is faithful. Yes, we will struggle. We will face temptations and we'll face trials. But God is faithful and will provide a way out. Verse 13, no temptation has overcome, overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. You may not, or rather, you may be able to endure. Paul is reminding us that we need to learn history. We need to learn the history of God's people. We don't have to repeat the sins of Israel. We don't have to repeat the sins of the Corinthians. We can be obedient to God and to finish well. It matters how we finish, how we end. We don't have to end like those who have failed. I love Hebrews 4, 16. It talks about we can approach God through the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. After warning the Corinthians of the danger of presuming on God's goodness, Paul next warns them of dangers of compromise spiritually. In those days, in Corinth, uh, the pagan temple kind of served as the place, kind of the community center-like, for gathering. Its courts had tables for regular dining. So the temple functioned somewhat, not exactly by any means for sure, but somewhat like a restaurant in our culture today. It wouldn't be unusual for a couple to attend a brief sacrificial uh, ritual and then join some friends for a nice meal afterwards. In the mind of these overconfident and sometimes arrogant Corinthians, it was a social gathering. It was neutral. They weren't worshiping idols in their mind. But later on we'll see that Paul warns them. He says that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. They offer to demons. He doesn't hold back any punches as he confronts them with the strong possibility of believers falling away from the Lord. He gives a very stern warning in, in verse 14. Flee! Flee! Idolatry. Flee it. When verses 16 through 18, Paul uses the Lord's Supper and Israel's sacrificial meals as an analogy, analogy um, 
in order to warn against this idolatry. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not of participation in the blood of Christ? In the bread we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we, have, we partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat sacrifices, participants in the altar. Paul makes it very clear that any kind of involvement in idolatry contradicts our identity in Jesus Christ here. We, have, we who are in Christ Jesus have died with him, were resurrected with him, and because of him have eternal life. And the communion table, as we partake in the communion table, is a symbol of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he is a source of life. He also is a source of the unity that we have. The natural response of this oneness with Christ and with one another is that we should not be involved in idolatry at any cost. Verses 19 through 22, we read, What pagans sacrifice they offer to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I think we're familiar with the fact that in the Old Testament, the metaphor of marriage is often used to describe Israel's relationship with His people, with Israel. And it's used in the sense of when Israel was flirting with idols. Idolatry was equivalent to the Israelites prostituting themselves. And as their husband, God, of course, got angry. Can you imagine what it's like when someone finds out their spouse has been unfaithful? In the same way, God identifies himself as a jealous God, a jealous husband. Of course, his jealousy is very different from ours. He's jealous to protect us. He's jealous to see us finish well. He's committed to what's best for us. He loves us so much that he will not let you and me get away with idolatry. He will intervene. He will crash into our lives. Sometimes it can be very painful. He will do whatever it takes to get your attention, to get my attention. And so the question asked there, the answer, are we stronger than he? No. No, we're not. No matter what rebellion or how entrenched it is in our lives, he is more powerful and he is able to get our attention to draw us back to himself. Well, it's with Israel's idolatry that Corinthians were testing Christ. 
earlier I mentioned that in beginning in chapter 8 that Paul had acknowledged that the pagan gods were not real. But here he asserts again that the sacrifices of the, to the false gods were in reality a sacrifice to demons. Just as Israel experienced the same baptism and meal but did not enter into the promised lands, the Corinthians faced the same danger of being disciplined. Idolatry happens every day, if we're honest. It's tempting to read these accounts of Israel or read about the Corinthians and kind of absolve ourselves of any danger. truth is, idolatry happens in that gut level, in that appetite, those desires that we have. It's not just an outward action. And when we look at things or people as a way to fulfill our desires that only God can fulfill, we're committing adultery. I'm idolatry, I mean. Not adultery. Idolatry. And when we use food or use sex, or use drugs to numb our deep feelings and desires we're engaging in idolatry. Today, we're still idolaters. We're just more sophisticated. Our idols appear more innocent since there are people with possessions, work, and leisure. If anyone or anything, though, has a priority over God, and we're idolaters. Let me ask you just a few questions. Do you know sports and entertainment industry better than you know your Bible? If so, you're accumulating endless knowledge that will be of no value in eternity. My dad would say, it's like a hill of beans. Worth a hill of beans. Do you spend more time on hobbies than serving Christ? If so, you'll have to answer why Christ and His church meant so little to you during your brief time here on earth. Do you spend more time surfing the well than you do with people? If so, you're neglecting the eternal souls that God wants you to impact. And finally, are you bent on making just a little more money? Just a little more money for for the family. For the family. If we are, if we make money our God, someone says, it'll plague you like the devil. The Corinthians wanted a way to serve Christ while still remaining acceptable in the public square. They didn't want their faith to really affect their everyday lives. They had one foot in and one foot out. We too, again, need to remember the history of God's people. Just as ancient Israel did not please God, Our natural tendency is to be self-indulgent and to crave evil things. Remember, though, remember remember what 
Israel craved. What evil they craved. Numbers 11 says that they said, Oh, for some meat. Oh, for some meat. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. We had all the cucumbers and the leeks and the onions and the garlic we wanted. How guilty are we of craving? Craving a new car. Craving a bigger house. Maybe a new partner. A new wardrobe. In light of eternity, these cravings on par with cucumbers and leeks. Seriously, seriously now, when we think about in eternity, what difference does it make what kind of car I drive? What difference does the size of my house make? What difference does it make in eternity that I was successful in a job? Well, just as I was tempted to quit football back in high school, we're going to be tempted to give up. We're going, we're going to, to, to hear Satan's lies. But don't listen. Don't obey him. Remember, remember we're running a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. We want to finish well. Don't presume on God's goodness. Don't presume that you're okay if you're living in sin. Don't compromise the gospel. James 1 says that God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation, and afterwards they will receive a crown of life. Hebrews 12 says, Since we are surrounded by such a crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that holds us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and if the prayer counselors will come up, you can come and.